<clears throat> Today is Sunday, November 13th, 2022, and uh, in just 13 days, we'll be uh, back here in the Zendo. Um, be in the Zendo or we'll be in the Buddha Hall? Zendo. Um, for Jukai? For Jukai. Buddha we'll be in the Buddha Hall. We'll be in the Buddha Hall for uh, the Jukai ceremony uh, that we have every fall on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. <clears throat> um, and so I wanted today to uh, to have a chance to talk a little bit about uh, Jukai. I'm going to uh, talk about some elements of it. No way I can get through the whole thing. And uh, there is a Teisho, another Teisho on Saturday morning <clears throat> where I'll have a chance to, uh, to look into uh, the ten cardinal precepts. But for today, I'm going to be talking about uh, uh, the earlier elements of the ceremony. Just a little bit about Jukai itself. Um, it's, uh, it's our word for uh, taking the precepts. They're kind of analogous to the moral commandments in Christianity. Um, best way to think of them is as a description of how we would be, how we would behave if we were fully enlightened and living in that understanding. So they're, they're aspirational. Uh, it's, it's what we aim for. <clears throat> and we'll talk about that some more. Um, uh, traditionally, uh, in, in Buddhism, taking the precepts means that you have entered the Buddha way. Uh, if you want to call yourself something, if you want to call yourself a Buddhist, well, <clears throat> if you do the ceremony, then uh, you can. Don't give you an official label or anything, but um, it is. It is. I remember the first time we ever did uh, Jukai here at the center long ago in the Dark Ages uh, when giants roamed the earth. <laughs> and... Uh, it was for for me doing it the first time. It was it was really a, a powerful experience. I just felt washed clean. <clears throat> There's something about laying it out and saying, "This is what I intend. This is my my highest aspiration." Uh, that uh, that changes us. <clears throat> Changes us, but we're still we're still the same person. Uh, it's kind of mysterious. Uh, here at the center, we we treat this all a little differently than many other centers do. Um, at uh, some centers, taking Jukai uh, also means taking a Buddhist name and uh, receiving a Raksu. Uh, we've we've always kept it a little more straightforward and simpler. And so, basically, anyone. Uh, there's no preparatory period or uh, any study that you need to do. Anybody can come to Jukai. You don't have to be a member of the center. <clears throat> I remember Roshi saying once somebody could be walking down Arnold Park, and if they found out and wanted to come, they could. <clears throat> so in, <laughs> invite your family and friends. <laughs> uh, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of benefit to taking Jukai again and again over the years. And, of course, many of us have, have done exactly that. <clears throat> so the ceremony itself, it's not terribly long. Uh, we'll start around 5 p.m. On, on that Saturday, two weeks from yesterday. Um, and uh, there is some chanting at the, at the beginning and then the ceremony itself consists of <clears throat> a repentance recitation, the repentance gata, uh, and then it's followed by 16 precepts. There are the three refuges or the three treasures, <clears throat> and then the three pure precepts or uh, three general, uh, what the other word for them is, three pure precepts anyway. Yeah, yeah, the three resolutions, and then the ten cardinal precepts, um, which we won't be able to get into today. Um, 
the uh, the precepts are part of one of the three foundations of Buddhist practice. Uh, they're in Sanskrit, it's shila, dhyana, and prajna. Shila means morality or, or upright conduct. Uh, it corresponds, I believe, to the first three of the steps of the Eightfold Path, <clears throat> which I'm not going to recite now. Um, but the way I like to think about morality or shila is uh, something I got in an AA meeting a long time ago. Uh, someone brought up the topic of honesty, telling the truth. And uh, some scruffy guy sitting <clears throat> not too far from me, uh, who I didn't have a really good impression of, piped up. And he said something that stuck with me since then. And he says, I'm honest because I like to travel light. It's true of all these precepts. When we really are making a genuine effort to live up to them, things lighten for us. Um, That's one of the reasons why morality is so important, is one of the three uh, main uh, supports, foundations of practice. It's because when we know we're doing our best, Uh, then it's easier for us to uh, sink into our practice, to sink into zazen. Uh, We don't have that sort of shakiness, that uh, covering things up, uh, that inauthenticity that can make it hard to actually let go and sink into whatever it is that we're doing on the mat. <clears throat> Bowden Roshi uh, is fond of uh, explaining the precepts as simply a way of doing as little harm as possible as we go through life. Anyone who's self-reflective has seen <clears throat> more than once that we do a lot of harm. We hurt others uh, through our our self-partiality, our separation. The more we can live up to these precepts, the less harm we're likely to do. I'm a little uncomfortable just saying morality because that has such a, a Western tone to it. A Christian tone. Another way to put it is awareness of cause and effect. In Buddhism, usually we don't say that's that's evil or that's degenerate. We say that's unskillful. When you act in this way, bad things happen to others and to yourself. <clears throat> And beyond just not doing harm, it's our aspiration to be of service to others, to live up to the four vows, to liberate all sentient beings. There's a concept people have probably heard of, most people, called bodhicitta. It's the uh, awakening of the aspiration to awaken for the sake of all beings. It's the essence of the bodhisattva vow. It comes out of this insight that we're all in this together. The more clear-sighted we are, the more we see our own shortcomings, the more we realize we're all in the boat together. And we, we, we draw power, we draw strength from our vow to dedicate ourselves to making things better.
So we all have good intentions. I think pretty much everyone in this room, everyone listening online, what is it that gets in the way? Well, there's a formulation for that in Buddhism. It's called the three poisons. Greed, hatred, and ignorance are sometimes called delusion. If you ever see a, a painting or a hanging of the, uh, the wheel of life, uh, the sort of Buddhist cosmology that divides all existence up into six different realms. We're living in one of them, which is the human realm. At the center of those drawings, there's a circle <clears throat> with a uh, rooster, a snake, and a pig. And they're uh, all biting each other in sort of a circle. And the rooster represents greed, the snake hatred or aversion, and the pig, ignorance. I always thought the pig represented greed, but uh, I guess the, uh, the oriental uh, meanings are a little different. I think the most uh, bedeviling of the three poisons is ignorance, because it's because we're ignorant of our true self, because we don't actually know who or what we are, it's because of that that we live in this world of separation. We see ourselves as here and the rest of the world outside us, and we spend our lives trying to manipulate what's outside of us so that things don't go too bad for us. <clears throat> that, that basic ignorance, not understanding it's all one. We're all in it together. It's what allows us to, to succumb to greed and succumb to anger. We have to recognize, we have to face up to the overwhelming power of habit in our life. Not only the habits of our actions, but the habits of our thinking, the habits of the way we instinctively see things. <clears throat> Even someone who's uh, had some sort of awakening experience still going to fall back into self and other, still going to see things outside. Long, long, long journey uh, to see things as a Buddha would see them. One of the, the wonderful things about Zazen is we get to see the workings of the mind. We're just looking, no agenda, just the koan, just the breath, all of our manipulation and selfishness is there, it's visible, it's not buried, it comes to the surface sometimes in painful ways. <clears throat> and as we uncover more and more, uh, things lighten. It's not a quick process. To <clears throat> throw out a slogan from AA, slow growth is good growth. The antidote to being controlled by our habits is other habits, really. The most important one is the habit of awareness. There's something wonderful about just noticing, going through life aware of what's going on in the body, noticing when you're wincing a little bit, noticing when you're impatient, Noticing when anger starts to rise. Noticing what you do that makes you happy and what is it you do that makes you miserable. <clears throat> Seeing other people, 
not skipping over anything, that habit of awareness, everything slows down. All of a sudden, what was a, a struggle, <clears throat> constantly being interrupted and frustrated, becomes more like a banquet. This life is so rich, so fortunate to be here, found this practice. <clears throat> We have to be okay with where we're at. We have to see where we're at. We have to notice what's going on. We have to be okay with it. That's the way it is. Right now, it's like this. Notice without wallowing in guilt. Guilt means solidifying our sense of a separate self. Instead of simply regretting the action feeling remorse for <clears throat> the effects of what we've done or what we've said. We're now thinking about ourselves as a thing and labeling, I'm, a, I'm just worthless. I'm hopeless. <clears throat> or maybe worse, it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, remorse is actually a purifying emotion. It comes with, with it comes the, the desire to put things right. But labe labeling ourselves good or bad is not so helpful, not so skillful. <clears throat> I want to touch on one aspect of uh, committing oneself to right action and that is the, the danger of what we could call spiritual inflation. Uh, everybody is sort of programmed to be aware of our own good intentions. We know we're trying. Uh, <clears throat> and we also notice the failings of others, and we don't always see that they're trying. Uh, people generally think they're better than others <clears throat> on the whole. If you, uh, if you ask Americans, you know, for instance, uh, do you think you're a, a better driver than average? Vast majority of Americans are better drivers than average. It's, when, when you see somebody do something wrong, you always attribute it to bad motives. It's, it's like, you know, how could they do that? You know, just what, what callousness, what disrespect. But when we ourselves do the exact same action, we know, oh, I screwed up, didn't mean to do that, <clears throat> forgive me and give me another chance. But we don't give other people another chance. Um, it's, it's the danger of a rigid moral compass is that we can begin to sort of unload on others. So one antidote to that are the teachings of Anthony DeMello. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for people who haven't heard me give a talk, it's, it's not unusual for me to bring him into the mix just because it's just, <clears throat> just because I like it. Um, so I'm just going to read a little section here. <clears throat> He's talking about this whole issue of, of selfishness. He says, I made the point that everything we do is tainted with selfishness. That isn't easy to hear. But think now for a minute. Let's go a little deeper into that. If everything you do comes from self-interest, enlightened or otherwise, so even if you're enlightened, it's still self-interest. How does that make you feel about all your charity and all those good deeds? What happens to those? Here's a little exercise for you. Think of all the good deeds you've done, or of some of them, because I'm only giving you a few seconds. Now understand that they really sprang from self-interest, whether you knew it or not. What happens to your pride? What happens to your vanity? What happens to that good feeling you gave yourself, that pat on the back every time you did something that you ought, thought was so charitable? <clears throat> I'm very familiar with the habit of patting oneself on the back. Actually, sometimes Errol does it for me when I get going. 
<clears throat> what happens to that? It gets flattened out, doesn't it? What happens to looking down your nose at your neighbor who you thought was so selfish? The whole thing changes, doesn't it? Well, you say, my neighbor has coarser tastes than I do. You're the more dangerous person. You really are. Jesus Christ, and of course Anthony DeMello is a Jesuit priest, so <clears throat> he's pretty familiar with Jesus. Jesus Christ seems to have had less trouble with the other type than with your type. Much less trouble. He ran into trouble who, with people who were really convinced they were good. Other types didn't seem to give him much trouble at all, the ones who were openly selfish and knew it. Can you see how liberating that is? Hey, wake up! It's liberating. It's wonderful. Are you feeling depressed? Maybe you are. Isn't it wonderful to realize you're no better than anyone else in the world? Isn't it wonderful? Are you disappointed? Look what we've brought to light. What happens to your vanity? You'd like to give yourself a good feeling that you're better than others, but look how we brought a fallacy to light. <clears throat> goes on just a little more, a little farther on. Uh, he says, what does this do to your relationship with people? What are you complaining about? A young man came to complain that his girlfriend let him down, that she'd played false. What are you complaining about? Did you expect any better? Expect the worst. You're dealing with selfish people. You're the idiot. You glorified her, didn't you? You thought she was a princess. You thought people were nice. They're not. They're not nice. They're, they're as bad as you are. <laughs> bad, you understand? <laughs> they're asleep like you. And what do you think they're going to seek? Their own self-interest exactly like you. No difference. Can you imagine how liberating it is that you'll never be disillusioned again, never be disappointed again, You'll never feel let down again, never feel rejected. Want to wake up? You want happiness? You want freedom? Here it is. Drop your false ideas. See through people. If you see through yourself, you will see through everyone. Then you will love them. Otherwise, you spend the whole time grappling with your wrong notions of them, with your illusions that are constantly crashing against reality. <clears throat> Think of how many times I've gone into a little thought train about the shortcomings of <clears throat> Donald Trump. Everybody just is what they are. <clears throat> Everybody, there's a story behind every person we disapprove of. There's a saying, everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. <clears throat> when we see that, then, then, we're, then we're one with other people. Then we can be in the mix. Then we're not, you know, many people um, want to become some sort of spiritual hero so we can come down and save others. It's not like that. Somewhere the uh, great Zen master Joshu Chinese name Zhao Zhou, said that when he was young, he wanted to become enlightened in order to help others. He said, now I find I'm merely a fool. When we really do good, it's done through us. <clears throat> it's not intentional. It's not planned. <clears throat> but hopefully, we can walk this path without getting puffed up too much. <clears throat> so, so much, so many times you see the irritability the rigidity, uh, the lack of empathy in people who are self-consciously virtuous. Really, uh, a feeling of virtue is, is 
very similar to a feeling of power. All sorts of studies have been done that show that people who feel more powerful <clears throat> are less aware of other people's emotions, less considerate of other people's emotions. I've talked before about the, uh, the experiment that was done with people standing at a crosswalk and watching which kind of cars would stop for people going across. And the basic rule of thumb was the more expensive the car, the less likely they're going to stop. And somebody uh, questioned that and said, well, yeah, but I bet people in a Prius would stop. And the experimenter said, well, actually, they were the worst. <laughs> so they've got money and they're virtuous. It's a bad combination. <clears throat> Self-consciously virtuous. The real way forward is openness. Openness, non-separation, abiding nowhere, nothing to defend, no one to impress, seeing what needs to be done and doing it, noticing and responding, as, as Roshi is so fond of saying. But people don't like seeing their own shortcomings. Uh, it feels like bad news, but really we're seeing what's already been there. Um, <clears throat> Since I've trotted out Anthony DeMello, I think I'll trot out just a short uh, paragraph from Joko Beck, uh, Zen teacher from San Diego. He's dead now. but She says, people often say to me, Joko, why do you make practice so hard? Why don't you hold out any cookies at all? But from the point of view of the small self, practice can only be hard. Practice annihilates the small self, and the small self isn't interested in that one bit. It can't be expected to greet this annihilation with joy. So there's no cookie that can be held out for the small self unless we want to be dishonest. There is another side to practice, however. As our small self dies, our angry, demanding, complaining, maneuvering, manipulative self, a real cookie appears, joy and genuine self-confidence. We begin to taste what it feels like to care about someone else without expecting anything in return. And this is true compassion. <clears throat> How much we have it depends on the rate at which the small self dies. As it dies, here and there, we have moments when we see what life is. Sometimes we can act spontaneously and serve others. And with this growth always comes repentance. When we realize that we have almost constantly hurt ourselves and others, we repent, and this repentance is itself pure joy. It's a feeling of, of confidence. It's not the confidence of the self-struggling against the world. It's the confidence of flowing into the right stream, knowing that we're going in the right direction, willing to take the journey. <clears throat> So I'm going to move now into the uh, ceremony itself, take a look at some of the, the pieces. Uh, so the structure is that uh, we begin with a repentance ceremony, and then uh, not, not a full ceremony, but we, take, we recite the repentance gata, uh, all harmful actions committed by me since time immemorial, stemming from greed, anger, and delusion, arising from body, speech, and mind, I now repent having committed. Go through that uh, three times, I think three times three. <clears throat> and it really is the perfect way to start the ceremony of Jakai, washing the slate clean. 
From there, we go into the three refuges, also called the three treasures. That's Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We'll be talking about that. And then the three pure precepts, uh, which is I resolve to do no harm. Sometimes it's I resolve to avoid evil or I resolve to avoid harm. We sort of have gone, uh, made changes over the years. And I think recently we've settled on um, I resolve to do no harm. Does that sound right to you guys? Yes. (laughs) Thumbs up from Donna Sensei. I resolve to do good. That's the second. And I resolve to liberate all sentient beings. Um, And then we go into the ten cardinal precepts. We do those only once. And uh, then that's it. We're all members of the Buddha's family. Let's go back. And uh, talk a little bit first about repentance. Um, We have to see what we have to repent of. Uh, We used to do a number of, we haven't done so many at the center, but we used to uh, do uh, a repentance ceremony fairly frequently. Now we do it as part of our New Year's celebrations. Um, But it was interesting, (laughs) judging others, seeing how many people really didn't have much they could think of to repent. And so sometimes you need to to really, really look hard. And uh, if you do, all of a sudden you're going to uncover quite a lot. It's like the, like the chant we do before meals. Defilements are many and exertions weak. It's just the fact of life. We have to notice. And we have to want to bring it into the open. You know, our normal, our normal impulse is anything we do that's off the mark, we want to bury that quickly. Get that buried so nobody digs it up. Don't show it. But practice is different. We want to see it. Almost welcome seeing it. And when we see it and we feel genuine remorse, then we begin to change change in a way that we're not in charge of. Real change. Organic change. Henry David Thoreau said, Make the most of your regrets. Never smother your sorrow, but tend and cherish it until it comes to have a separate and integral interest. To regret deeply is to live afresh. It's, It's... It's really a program of ego attrition. To uh, quote Anthony DeMello one more time, I'm an ass, you're an ass. After the repentance ceremony, uh, we go into the three refuges. And... uh, I want to read something from... uh, a guy I'd never heard of him before. I found this uh, article from uh, a publication called Grassroots Theology. It's something, uh, evidently something of the Unitarian Universalist Church, and this guy is himself a psychotherapist, a student of Buddhist meditation, and a Unitarian Universalist minister. There are a lot of those around lately. Apparently we're compatible, we and the UUs, Um, I can't read the whole article, of course, so I'm just going to plunge in here. Um, He says, he begins this way, the phrase taking refuge does not fit comfortably on the English-speaking tongue. We don't use the phrase often. There was a study done, he says here, of phrases most often used in Hollywood movies the most common phrase is, let's get out of here. (laughs) He says, getting out of here is the opposite of taking refuge. Getting out is escape. Taking refuge is going to a place of shelter, comfort, restoration. 
And even though we don't use the phrase much, we do it in our action. For example, he says, on Friday evenings, I often feel tired from the week. I'd like to spend time with my family, but don't have much energy to put into it. So we go to the movies, where I can relax from the strain of doing anything meaningful. It's comfortable and enjoyable. It is a refuge. He mentions a few others, including Hostess Snowballs. <clears throat> Apparently they were a big thing for him as a kid. And he says, we can take refuge in almost anything. Some people take refuge in their work, others in weekends or vacations. Some look for security in money, in political beliefs. Some turn to religion, some to gardening, aerobics, or meditation. It's a natural human instinct. When we are tired, frightened, lonely, or stressed, we look for something to give us relief. He says, I can take refuge in overeating, but my stuffed belly is really not comfortable. The logie feeling in my mind isn't great, and the long-term health effects are bad. He talks about taking refuge in anger and revenge. The question really isn't, do I seek refuge? We do it all the time. The question is, what do I seek refuge in? And there he brings up the three refuges in the Buddhist tradition. He says, the first refuge is the Buddha. When I first heard about this some two decades ago, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, this sounds like a cult. But taking refuge in the Buddha Actually, we don't even say the Buddha. We say I take refuge in Buddha. We'll talk about that more. Taking refuge in the Buddha does not mean accepting Buddha as your savior, as a Southern Baptist might turn to Jesus. Shortly after his enlightenment, Siddhartha Gautama, who was known as the Buddha, was walking down a road. A group of yogis saw him and were taken by the compassion and clarity he emanated. They could feel by his presence that he had accomplished something remarkable. They asked, who are you? What has happened to you? He replied, I woke up. Using the Sanskrit word Buddha, or one who has awakened. So taking refuge in the Buddha means taking refuge in our own Buddha nature, in our essential aliveness and clarity. What a Christian might call taking refuge in the Christ within. the opposite of Calvinism. Calvin saw humans as essentially depraved. He said our only hope was intervention of external divine powers. Calvin said we are all wretches. Siddhartha Gautama said we are all Buddhas. We may not feel it, but we can rely on it. We can take refuge in it. It's, it's taking refuge in our natural mind. The mind that hears and sees effortlessly. It's a mind of no contrivance. taking refuge in the fact that from the very beginning all beings are Buddha just as we chanted in Hakuin's chant in praise of Zazen but he asks if we're already enlightened why meditate why work on ourselves can't we just sit back and enjoy the ride he says if we knew our true nature through and through We would just savor life, but we don't really get it. And then he turns to an episode in Star Trek. This is the trifecta today. Anthony DeMello, Joko Beck, and Captain Kirk. It says, the series featured Captain Kirk, a human, and his first officer, Mr. Spock, who was half human, half Vulcan. Most people probably are familiar with this, but if not, just bear with me. Vulcans always practice logic, cultivating their intellects and suppressing their emotions. And in this episode, Kirk and Spock get caught in an alien force field 
that makes a barrier around them. When they relax, the field grows weak and transparent. If they push against it, it gets stronger. If they throw themselves against it, it gets dense and powerful. Finally, they realize that their prison is only as strong as their efforts to escape it. If they know they are free, they can move out without effort. But if they have even a flicker of doubt, the force field will hold them prisoner. Kirk can't get out. He intellectually understands that they are free, but still desires to get away from the alien apparatus. He thinks he will be freer if he can get out of here. That hedging is enough to keep him trapped. Spock, with his greater internal discipline, harbors no doubts about their freedom. Unlike Kirk, he simply walks out. This is exactly our situation. We are free. We are enlightened. We have Buddha nature. God dwells within us, however you want to put it. Of course, the only place that can be experienced is in this moment. This moment is the only place we can experience anything. But when we think about Buddha nature, we think about the future. We think we'll be freer, happier, or more peaceful in a future moment after doing some more spiritual growth. We're trying to get out of here. He says, it's a ghastly, wonderful paradox. Knowing we're free is not enough. We have to experience it. This is not a word trick. It's how life works. Before we can feel liberated, we have to feel liberated. In order to be free, we have to know we're already free. But since we're, we equivocate, we need help. <clears throat> and that takes him into, I take refuge in Dharma. Taking refuge in Dharma means taking refuge in the truth of how things are. We may not always see clearly, we may not know the truth, but we can take refuge in knowing that whatever the truth is, it will serve our highest best interest. It's a kind of reverse paranoia. The universe is not out to get us, but out to support us. <clears throat> of course, going back to Jogo Beck, from the standpoint of the small self, the universe is pretty threatening. But in terms of our spiritual growth, in terms of our health, in terms of our aspiration, the universe is exactly what we need. He says, Buddhists don't see truth as something obscure or hidden, like a relic buried in the wilderness waiting for us to dig it out. Truth is out in the open. It's before us all the time. Buddha said our problem is ignorance. In his language, the word does not have the negative connotations English gives it. The root, word, the root word is ignore. The truth is before our eyes, and we ignore it. <clears throat> or we could just say we don't see it. Taking refuge in the Dharma implies a commitment to being as mindful as we can, being humble enough to keep looking with fresh eyes. coming back and again, again and again to our, our beginner's mind. Realizing that we don't know, that mind of not knowing, sense of wonder, faith that what we're looking for is here. When you're truly convinced it's here, it's right in front of me, the mind opens see more. <clears throat> and then it makes sense. I take refuge in Dharma. Of course, Dharma can also mean uh, the Buddhist teachings, but really it's not a set of beliefs. As he says, it's not a contract with America. It's not a New Age metaphysic. It's not the same as 
the way a good Catholic accepts the teachings of the Holy Church. He says here, when asked how he achieved enlightenment, Siddhartha Gautama said, this is what I did, but if it doesn't help you with your problem, you have to see it for yourself. He cautioned against accepting anybody's beliefs, including his. Beliefs are pale and feeble compared to seeing. You can believe the grass is green, but once you see the grass, the belief has no more use. You know. He says later on, sometimes a therapy client will tell me, I don't want to look at those feelings. Let's not go there. If he or she is deeply committed to growth, I say, what you want is not relevant. The only important thing is what is true. Finally, we have taking refuge in Sangha. Um, Literally means the monastic community, a gathering of monks. Um, But more loosely translated, we could say those who are working consciously on their spirituality, whether they're Buddhist or not, Anybody who's on the journey of self-completion is part of the Sangha. And you can even expand it beyond that, I think. Really, anybody is part of the Sangha, because everyone, whether they know it or not, whether it's conscious or not, uh, is on this journey. But in some ways, Sangha is kind of richer when we realize that we have this, we can benefit so much from association, from being shoulder to shoulder with other people who are doing what we're doing. We're social creatures. We're we're affected, we're so affected by the people we hang out with. Remember learning at some point that a bigger influence on children than their parents is their peers. finding the the right companions so important in life and in spiritual practice. There's a story of the Buddha and Ananda. Ananda was his attendant, lifelong attendant. And he says, on one occasion, the venerable Ananda came to the Buddha and said that in his view, half the spiritual life revolves around spiritual friendship. The Buddha immediately corrected him and said, Do not say this, Ananda. Do not say this, Ananda. Spiritual friendship is not half the spiritual life. It is the entire spiritual life. So, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. As is my want. I see I'm using up my time. But I want to also uh, cover the uh, three pure precepts or the three resolutions. So to go over them again, I resolve to do no harm. I resolve to do good. And I resolve to liberate all sentient beings. How do we do no harm? We need to see the truth. We need not to be deceived by the habit of separation. And then it's just a question of course correction. doing the best we can. Repentance and remorse and atonement. When we do the repentance ceremony, we ask people not only to make a statement of whatever they repent of, but also their intention not to do that action or how do they, they hope to remediate what they've done. 
notice, and respond. Second is a resolve to do good. Pretty simple. I resolved, the third, I resolved to liberate all sentient beings. Do it for doing it for the sake of others. These three pure precepts are really sort of an, um, an, an editing uh, of something in the Dhammapada. To avoid evil, to do good, to help others. It's pretty simple. A lot of people probably find this a little pedestrian. There's a story. <clears throat> Some of you may have heard this before. It's a master in China, ancient China. Uh, master Chan, Master Daolin. And he was well known because he would sit in a tree. He was known as the bird's nest master. And the story goes, one day the literary giant, I guess a great poet, Bai Ju Yi, paid a visit to Chan Master Daolin. He saw the Chan Master sitting upright in a magpie's nest. So he said, Chan Master, living in a tree is too dangerous. The master replied, Magistrate, it is your situation that is extremely dangerous. Bai Ju Yi heard this and taking exception said, I'm an important official in this imperial court. What danger is there? And the master said, The torch is handed from one to another. People follow their own inclinations without end. How can you say it's not dangerous? <clears throat> the meaning there is that in officialdom, there are rises and falls, and people are scheming against one another. Danger is right before your eyes. And Bai Ju Yi seemed to have come to some understanding. Changing the subject, he then asked, What is the essential teaching of the Dharma? And the master replied, Commit no evil, do good deeds. Hearing this, Bai Ju Yi thought the Chan, Ma- Chan master would ex- instruct him with some profound concept, yet they were just ordinary words. Feeling very disappointed, he said, Even a three-year-old child knows this concept. And the master said, Although a three-year-old child can say it, an 80-year-old man cannot do it. That's what our practice is. Zen Master Dogen said, a practice of continual failure. Try and fail. Try and fail. Try harder. Fail better. Okay. Our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.